This is ContactTalkRadio.com. Consciousness in action. And you are taking action into your consciousness by tuning into Contact Talk Radio. And on TuneIn.com, Hing.fm, and Upsnap Mobile. Contact Talk Radio. Welcome to Carpe Diem with your host, Lisa McDonald. Mama told me when I was young, we're all superstars. She pulled my hair with my lipstick on, in a glass of purple Good morning, everybody. Thank you so very much for joining me or rejoining me here on this lovely Friday. I am your host, Lisa McDonald. This is my show, Carpe Diem, with the Contact Talk Radio Network. And I am super jazzed today because I have an awesome guest on my show. I've been blessed with many awesome guests on my show. Uh, we've got Neil McDonald with us live. It was his birthday yesterday, 59 years old. And uh, he's recapping on some of the events, some of the stories in which he's covered throughout his career. Very expansive career. Senior correspondence with CBC. He's been with the National. He's covered on Parliament Hill. He's worked in this in DC as a senior correspondent. Uh, he's been in war zones. Uh, he's seen devastation up front and personal. And so, approaching and in an urban environment, one of the things you have to do first when when you you encounter an exchange of gunfire is you have to figure out where the gunfire is coming from. Mm-hmm. And in, 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 a, in a closed urban environment, the sound ricochets. So it's very difficult to know even which direction it's coming from, but you've got to figure it out fast or you're going to get killed. Mm-hmm. So we took cover, and my producer, David Common, who is now a you know, pretty well-known CBC on-air journalist, one of the coolest heads under fire I think I've ever seen, especially at his age, and he's, he, he, he took a small handheld camera, he set it on wide angle, and he put it down beside the tire of our vehicle before he himself took cover and it captured this rolling gun battle. And then we went, you know, we went back a little later on and found the people who were being chased who were, um, they were, uh, uh, they were anti-Aristide people who were being chased by a group of pro-Aristide people called the Shimao, which means the nightmares. And uh, these guys were, torn to pieces and bleeding into the, into the gutter. And we, we, so it sort of capped the sequence. So it was one of those very, very dramatic uh, TV sequences that sort of capture an entire political event. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, but, you know, it, I was younger then, and you, you tend not to think as much about the reality of what's happening around you, which is that there are bullets carrying through the air and there are rockets carrying through the air. But all you have to be is a little bit unlucky, and you're either dead or paralyzed. Right. For for so long, you know, I thought, and so many journalists think that just because you've got a you know a flak jacket on with press written on it, or just because you're a journalist, you're going to be spared this uh, you know sort of awful fate that can befall you in places like that. And, 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 And recently, I think. Journalistic organizations have started taking the prospect of, of, of their reporters being grievously wounded much more seriously. They provide you with security now. It's very expensive. And they're shyer about going into those things than they used to be. I mean, it used to be when I first started doing that, you can 
go anywhere at all. I mean, they were happy. They didn't care how what kind of risk you took. It just went with the job. And now they are more risk averse, and I think they want us to be more risk averse. But you know, I, I wouldn't. Let me put it this way: I wouldn't have done that again. Uh, no. I wouldn't have come that close to a rolling gun battle again. I mean, the product was wonderful journalistically, but you know, you. Uh, I sat down in Libya a couple of years, well, several years in 2011, I guess it was, when the Arab Spring was first happening and the Libyan borders opened. I went into Libya, and I wound up down in Raslan, I guess, by age, you know, mid-50s, and uh, there was tremendous violence erupted, uh, and there were rockets coming in, and there was heavy machine gun fire, which is a terrifying thing. And I had this epiphany. I sort of stood there and thought, what in God's name am I going to do if one of these things takes my leg off the knee? It's going to be a, there's going to be a very long evacuation across the, the eastern desert of, of uh, sorry, the western desert of Egypt and maybe a, a Learjet to Italy and a colostomy bag and God knows what else. And what for, really? I mean, every war. Patrick Brown, my old colleague, said war brings the worst, best and the worst in everyone, and it's the most fascinating thing there is to cover. But really and truly, I can tell you, his reputation Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're covering human suffering. You're watching people get hurt. You're you're taking the, the risk of getting hurt yourself. And it, I just finally decided I gave it up at the office. So I don't volunteer for those jobs anymore. Although I guess I'd go again if I was asked to. I'd just be a little more careful. Right. Well, let let me ask you this: what what has this done to your psyche? You know, you know, to be. To get the real story, uh, you know, to go into these war zones, uh, to really properly, uh, you know, depict what the reality is of the people who live there, um, the violence that is, you know, perpetuated throughout the years and the decades. Uh, what does this do to your own psyche? Uh, you know, how do you decompress yeah. from this? How do you, how do you not get jaded? Because yeah, not even, yeah. not, not even just the violence aspect and you being you know, in the trenches with that, but even just the details of some of the stories that you unleash. And when you peel it back and you realize to the degree that there's either been cover up or there's been deception, uh, you know, how do you deal with that? How do you reconcile that within well, yourself? Look, I mean, I, this is a question that, is, that has begun to be asked in the last 10 years or so. It, it didn't used to get asked when I was the younger reporter. Nobody gave it that what, what you're saying here, what you thought, but um, look, I, 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 I always took a pretty business-like approach to it. You know, you're covering something, and you try to do it right, and you try to measure the amount. And it, you know, I, I want to note here that I haven't done it for five years, but when I was doing it, you, you would try to figure out, you would try to do an assessment of how, how the risk could be managed, and you would try to manage it. As far as, as the effect on you of, of extreme witnessing extreme violence or extreme misery, uh, you know, or or um, or widespread death, and I've seen all of those things. I have waded through human viscera. Um, I, I, it seems heartless to say so, but it has no effect on me, whatever. I mean, there are people that that have PTSD over these things. Maybe they're more thoughtful than I am, but it never had. Corpses and, and and blood never had the slightest effect on me at all. Uh, I had a, a Muslim sheikh one time explain to me that once the spirit is departed, what you're looking at is clay. Perhaps I, I, I have been taking that approach my entire life. Uh, you know, death never really bothered me that much. It's just, you know, I just have a missing gene, I guess. I don't, 
maybe for the same reason that I couldn't care less about organized sports and football games bore me. You know, death doesn't have that effect on me. I don't know what it is. I actually did a, a I actually did an essay on TV one time about how it's just death. I mean, I remember being a pallbearer when I was a teenager for a friend of mine who was killed in a car accident and looking at the corpse and thinking, oh well, you know, I mean, poor guy. But it didn't have it didn't have the any profound psychological or effects on me. I'll tell you what did. I mean, I think the worst I've ever felt was I was in a refugee camp, and I was Palestinian refugee camp, and they were locked down, and there was a, the Israelis had invaded the camp, and there was a lot of violence. And I mean, the Israelis are a well-armed army, and the, the Palestinians had rocks, and there was a kid, as often happened, was playing in his front yard, you know, and, and, and the kid was killed. Uh, and, and the poor little boy, you know, <clears throat> shot dead by a sniper or some some Israeli with a gun. And we went to the house, and, you know, we weren't supposed to go there. It was a closed military area. We got in there anyway, and we went to the house. And the woman is explaining how shattered her life is. Her husband had been killed, too. She had about nine kids. The youngest one was dead. She couldn't even bury him properly. And at one point, she got up and walked across the room because of Arab hospitality, trying hard to offer us something. And she opened her refrigerator, and in the refrigerator was some a bottle of sort of cheap, fizzy orange pop like Fanta and one potato. Mm. And, you know, and she's got all these kids that she's got to feed. And I thought that was profoundly sad. You know, this, mm-hmm. this, this woman didn't ask for any of this. All she was mm-hmm. trying to do was live her life. And circumstances had conspired to, to, to make her desperate. And she had no option. If she walked out of the house, she had probably been shot. There was a curfew. So, you know, I, I remember coming out of there with my cameraman and looking at him and saying, yeah, cheers and stuff. It was, you know, it was, and it was just something about the plight and her trying to bear up under it that was heartbreaking. But the death is, in, you know, often in those areas, it's just industrial level. And, and quite frankly, I suppose, you know, you become, you become inured to it. I, I, I don't have anything approaching PTSD. I don't have nightmares. Oh, okay, well, I had a nightmare. I had nightmares one time after I went. I, I did a whole... Much earlier in my career, I did a lot of stuff on Nazi war criminals, and I spent a lot of time going to concentration camp archives. And I went to Dachau, and I went to Treblinka, and I went to Auschwitz, and I went to, and some of these places had, had you know, archives that I needed to access. And Auschwitz was um, going to Birkenau, which was the adjunct camp to Auschwitz with the death chambers, where was, uh, it left me with nightmares for, for days. Uh, but, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I, I guess I'm not a terribly sensitive individual. I don't, I don't experience a lot of grief or a lot of remorse, a lot of psychological damage. Maybe I do. Maybe I'll be jumping off a roof 10 years from now and having flashbacks. <laughs> oh, well, that's a story I don't want to hear, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think, you know, I appreciate your rawness and your honesty with regards to that. And I think probably a lot of people within certain vocations, you know, whether it be nurses, doctors, uh, anybody who's surrounded firsthand, up close, personal with death, uh, I think I think there's a – I mean, people can only do those kinds of jobs based on, I think, to a certain degree, being able to compartmentalize or to, uh, you know – be desensitized to those situations in order to be effective at what it is that you do. 
And, you know, when you're still doing it or you're still researching it, you're still reporting about it, you know, because that's still part and parcel of your life, although you're doing crossovers of different layers of what your career is currently versus what you've done in the past. Um, you know, maybe it's not until you get out of it completely that you sit back and go, wow, like no, my, no, my life. Let, let, let me let me rephrase this. You've listened to the shows on CTR, and perhaps you've found yourself thinking, maybe I should host my own show, but I don't know how. It's easier than you think. From the beginning with private coaching sessions to your own live broadcasts, CTR Network will prepare you on every level to share your knowledge, expand your brand, and take your business to the next level. At CTR, we nurture your vision and make it a radio reality. Contact Cameron Steele at 425-221-3646 or Cameron at CTRnetwork.com and put your dream into motion today. Want to become a member of an amazing and fun group of individuals? Then you need to join the Contact Talk Radio Network. When you join Contact Talk Radio, you join our social network where you can chat with the show hosts and other members, post pictures, even videos. When you join Contact Talk Radio, you receive exclusive information about our shows, events, and all the latest happenings. When you join Contact Talk Radio, you become a member of our team, blazing a trail to greater understanding of the world we live in. Signing up takes less than a minute, and boom, you're in. Don't wait. Come join us. Visit contacttalkradio.com now and click sign up. Welcome back to my show. I'm Lisa McDonald. You're here with my guest, Neil McDonald, CBC correspondent. So, Neil, good to have you here again. And uh, so do you want to just pick up where we left off with regards to uh, we were talking about the psyche and, um, you know, the no, fact I was, that. I, I was just trying to make the point that, that it has it has nothing to do with, with courage or bravery or cowardice or foolishness. It has to do with. Your, your mental uh, makeup uh, in, in, in much the same way that, that some people like. Some people can get all worked up about a sports game and some people don't. It's just a matter of how you process information. And there are people who are my favorite people to work with are the ones that don't get carried away at all, that, that, that don't get swept up at all in the emotion of anything and figure out how to most coolly and efficiently cover it for everybody else because really we're not there to be feeling bad 
we're there conveying information that, uh, that the general public can decide whether it makes them feel bad or not. Absolutely. Um, so, you, you know, it, it may be an old-fashioned view, but it certainly, I think, is one that Patrick Brown, who was probably the single best war correspondent I ever worked with, has. Um, you know, uh, and people do it for all sorts of reasons. They do it for self-aggrandizement. They do it for adventure. They do it because they're chasing post-pubescent fantasies of, of <laughs> swashbuckling. And there are people that do it because they are journalists and they figure that, that that's what we do for a living and you got to take that crappy assignment with the good ones. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I emphasize again, it's been five years since I did it. It was a very flashy part of my career. It was very high-profile stuff. But really, it wasn't that difficult. You know, I had a city editor when I was young at the Ottawa Citizen, the first paper I worked at. He said that there are really only two kinds of stories, or maybe three kinds of stories. There are there are cop stories, and there are city hall stories. And what he meant by that was that, you know, what's war? It's not. It's just a big cop story. A police story is a murder, right? Well, war is murder on a large scale. And City Hall, once you know how to cover City Hall, you know how to cover Congress. <laughs> wow. And quite frankly, it takes a lot more brains to cover, you know, Parliament or, or the exercise of power or government properly than it does to go to a war zone and find somebody who's suffering. You know, that's pretty simple, really. Uh, you know, you've got to have some storytelling ability, but, you know, but to, to cover politics properly or public policy properly, is is a very difficult thing indeed, and not too many people do it right. And so throughout your career, uh, you know, do you have a favorite or most memorable or most cathartic type story that you've covered? Is there, is there one story in particular out of all of them that really resonates with you? Uh, it's like asking somebody their favorite movie. There's there's There are moments that I remember very clearly. There are moments when the guy across the table from you opens an envelope and pulls out several CIA documents that are highly classified and says, here, look at this. And mm-hmm. you look down at it and go, holy shit. Or, <laughs> you know, uh, there was uh, a time in Germany when I was looking for the commander of Hitler's bunker uh, because he was wanted. He was still wanted by the Canadian authorities. And I was at an SS reunion in the Bavarian Alps. And I sat down and drank with an old man who had been a who had been a concentration camp guard, an evil old bastard, and he knew where the guy was and told me. So there are these moments where you go, "Wow, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is cool." No but kidding. Few and far between, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to ask you, Neil. What was the first story that you ever covered? What was the first job? What was the first? Uh, what was the first? Can you recall that? I mean, everybody I can't, remember the first. I can. It was absolutely dreadful. I was a copy boy. I started as a copy boy, running around filling paste pots and getting, you know, filling booze orders for old alcoholic editors, and, <laughs> and you know, tearing off, tearing copy paper off, and, and generally doing whatever I was told. Uh, and I was the little fart catcher, to use the terminology of the day, and uh, as the, the, the Ninth City editors said he was going to give me a big break and let me cover Gloucester Council. <laughs> Gloucester was a municipality south of Ottawa that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, was a 
with the, their council meetings were every week at night, and it was maybe the most boring session. <laughs> I, it was like I, I came back from thinking, if this is what it's all about, you know, I'm going to go and you know get a job and get me out of here. Sell hamburgers. <laughs> it was soporific. Like I, I struggled to stay awake. I was listening mm-hmm. to, to five people, none of whom were terribly bright, argue points of procedure that were, you know, I didn't I didn't even know what they were talking about. But you know. It's, <laughs> I, I should have known what they were talking about, and, and over the course of the next few years, I started learning parliamentary procedure and, 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 and you know, governing procedure, and these are things that you have to know. So mm-hmm. in a sense, it was, in a sense, it was kind of the right first step, but I remember thinking, oh my God, <laughs> I was really, <laughs> I thought it was really cool though, that they gave uh-huh. me a citizen car. They gave me this like, well, it was a Ford Rambler or something. It was painted bright yellow and it had the citizen written on either door. And I thought, man, am I ever important driving around the streets of Ottawa in a citizen car? <laughs> I thought that was pretty cool. That's the so first you... story I ever covered. Okay. And what was your favorite story or the most standout story or what you thought was very crucial or pivotal looking back on your career? What story, what aspect of what you've been involved with, with that you've been affiliated with, What what is it that you can say, wow, that was really pivotal? cruise missiles go down streets overhead in Baghdad, maybe. That was, mm-hmm. pretty, that was pretty amazing. Um, uh, uh, talking to real Nazis at a Nazi reunion in southern Germany, uh, uh, meeting Ronald Reagan, uh, you know, uh, flying on a B-52 bomber. Uh, I've done a few things. It's been, uh, you know, uh, interviewing Yasser Arafat, meeting King mm-hmm. Hussein, uh, you know, I've done, I've done some things. And you know when you do it that this is kind of a bit of history. And that's, Absolutely. You know, uh, but, but, you know, the, the, and, and, and from time to time, there are those magic moments where you're having a conversation with somebody and entirely out of the blue, something snaps in that person and they decide they're going to tell you a secret because they're pissed off or, or they're, <laughs> you know, they're feeling, they, they feel there's been an injustice or they just think the public should know. And suddenly they hand you pure 24-karat gold. And some reporters are actually stupid enough not to recognize it when it happens because it's not mm-hmm. always that blatant. But when mm-hmm. it happens, it's like it doesn't get any better than that, really. Lovely. Wonderful. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned Patrick Brown as being somebody who you highly respect. Um, and that was one of the questions I wanted to ask you. You know, news has come a long way, and it's obviously changed for you uh, for the for the amount of time that you've been involved in this as your career. So, you know, who is it maybe inclusive of Patrick Brown that you really, um, really respect in terms of journalism, in terms of demeanor, in terms of composure, fact-finding, uh, once, you know, once again, it's like asking somebody their favorite movie. Patrick Brown is the best natural war correspondent I've ever seen in my life, and I've seen some pretty good ones. Patrick, we were in, I was in uh, Amman, Jordan, with Patrick during the first Gulf War, and mm-hmm. everybody was, we, we had our windows taped and we had gas suits because everybody, you know, Saddam Hussein had threatened to strike Israel with, with, with uh, weapons of mass destruction, and the Israeli tanks were massed on the Jordanian border. And we were sitting in the Marriott Hotel, and my wife called me and woke me up and said, what are you going to do now? A gas uh, missile is hit television. And I holy shit, like, this is going to be the Third World War. Mm-hmm. The Israelis had rolled nukes out. So I got up and put on my jeans and went next door to the edit suite, and Patrick was sitting there. And I said, 
we got to get out of here. Like, we're going to have to load the jeeps with petrol and drive south to Aqaba and cross over into, into uh, either into Israel or into Egypt along the common border. And Patrick said, no, I don't think so. I think we should wait and see what Netanyahu says at the United Nations, because I'm not sure this is true. And I said, mm-hmm. Patrick, <laughs> this is reported <laughs> on the BBC. Like, the BBC is... You know, right. your basic yeah. reliable news organization. Well, you know what? It wasn't gas. It was a couple of high-explosive missiles that didn't actually hit anybody. Some guy had a heart attack. But, you know, uh, it wasn't poison gas. And Patrick was cool enough and analytical enough to have that figured out by the time. I just wanted to leave. You know, and I thought, man, this guy really knows his stuff. Now, mm-hmm. there are, you know, there are other people. There, You know, Glenn Allen at the Montreal Gazette was one of the most gifted writers I've ever seen. Uh, he, he had a writing ability that was something like Tom Wolfe's. Um, you know, he was a lovely writer. It, it, it actually filled me with despair sometimes to read his stories because I knew I would never write that well, and I think I'm a pretty good writer. <laughs> and then there are people who have an ability to winnow information, out of, to understand politics on a level that I, I never will. I, I, I like policy. I don't understand politics. I, I, I don't understand why people go into politics. I, I think it's a big popularity contest, and I figure that eventually we're all going to find out who the winner is, and everything else is just speculation. But there mm-hmm. are people who are good at all. There are certain people who are good at all these things. They have particular talents, and you run into them, and you know they're the best of their field. Um, Mel Morris, who is a tremendously good managing editor at the Montreal Gazette, um, when I was a... Um, I was a uh, uh, an editor at the Montreal Gazette in the early 80s. Mel was explaining to me how to manage the newsroom, which, hang on. Um, Mel was explaining to me how, sorry, I was just interrupted. But Mel was explaining to me how to manage a newspaper, which I thought I was going to go into management, which would have been a disaster. But um, <laughs> he said, you can't have a bunch of geniuses. You have to have a couple of hardcore investigative people. You have to have a couple of, you know, writers of almost dreamlike ability. You have to have a whole cadre of people who aren't that terribly bright but are willing to go to Gloucester Council night after night and grind out stories about stop signs. You have to have people who are highly specialized, who can write about health and who can write about science and know a lot about the subject matter. You have to have that mixture and maintain that mixture, and that's a newspaper. It's not mm-hmm. a bunch of Woodwards and Bernsteins. If you have a bunch of Woodwards and Bernsteins, they're always going to beat each other's throat. Nothing's ever going to get done. Right. And, and that made a, quite an impression on me. You know, you, you, there are, you know, there are people that have certain outstanding talents, and it's just the way they're used. But there's mm-hmm. no, you know, who's the best reporter I ever met. You know, I've, I've had some pretty good reporters, and, you know, some of them are, you know, they're, they're, there's a fir- I, I, there are a number of reporters, I would say, of the first rank, and I've just named a few of them to you. But, mm-hmm. you know, the best reporter is, again, like saying, you know, what's your favorite song? Just too mm-hmm. many of them. Okay. Fine. Fair enough. Well, I appreciate, I appreciate your answers, and I appreciate the elaborations on each of those individuals, so thank you for sharing that. What I find fascinating is uh, your brother, Norm MacDonald, uh, famous right. actor, comedian. Yeah. So how are you two alike? How are you not alike? Fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, 
My brother did me the great compliment one time telling Larry King that I was funnier than he was. We, when we grew up, we used to make each other choke with laughter. We had a very authoritarian father, and we would make fun of him. And, and Norman and I think a lot alike. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have, but he went off in a different direction. I actually once offered him a job. Uh, well, I had him. I had, I had him offered a job at the Ottawa Citizen. And Norm doesn't have a driver's license because he's never learned how to drive. <laughs> and he doesn't figure he should have to. Uh-huh. Managing editor, managing editor, the job was to be a copy boy. He was, I don't know, he was, he had some terrible menial job. And, and I said, let me see what I can do. And he came in for the job interview with the managing editor said, you know, do you, do you drive Norm? And he said, no. And, and, and Nelson, the managing editor said, well, why do you want to be a reporter? And Norm said, because I want to find the truth. And Nelson wow. said, uh, how do you expect to find the truth if you don't have a driver's license? And Norm said, I was hoping it would be within walking distance. <laughs> my, my brother doesn't think like most people. Uh, but we're, we're, we're in pretty close touch. He, uh, he I, I spent, he lives in Venice, California, and, mm-hmm. uh, and I spent, uh, we, we spent a tremendous holiday at, a, <clears throat> at his place. I mean, he lives well. Um, I would venture to say he probably makes more money than I do. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> he lives very well, and, and he's very generous, and, and he's a scream. But Norm is, is not, you know, as most comedians, he's not in private. He's not what he is in public. Uh, and he's a very shy person, and he, he will go, he'll spend a long time, he'll spend, you know, an hour not speaking at all. He listens to everybody, and then, of course, he uses it for his material. Mm-hmm. But, uh, Interesting. You know, Norm is a very uh, uh, special individual, I guess would be the way to put it. <laughs> and so, he's pretty, I, I I find him hopelessly funny. I mean, I just I, I clown. He's hilarious. He's absolutely well, hilarious. A couple of times, and it's just it reduces me to weeping. But you know, he's a very strange guy because some people don't find him funny at all, and that's what <laughs> happened to him on Saturday Night Live. You know, mm-hmm. he was. You know, some people, he had like a, he had this cult-like following of hundreds of thousands of people who were just abs- he was the funniest guy in the world to them. And then there were some people, who included unfortunately the vice president of entertainment for for NBC, who didn't think it was very funny at all, and that's what cost him his job. That and the fact that he was making O.J. Simpson jokes every night, and, <laughs> and, and, and the boss of NBC was a friend of O.J. Simpson. Oh, uh, there you go. There's the yeah. politics. There's the connection. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he came on. He came on one night, and he said, "Well, you know, in the uh, the O.J. Simpson trial continues." And probably most people don't even remember this. But the O.J. Simpson trial continues today. We've had court heard the testimony of Cato Kalin, who was a pool boy at O.J. Simpson's house, and Cato Kalin testified that in the hours leading up to and after the murder, uh, O.J. Simpson was uh, uh, restless and upset. But he was perfectly calm while he was actually stabbing her to death. Wow. He would say something like this once a week. Um, right. And, and then it turned out that he became friends with Cato Kamlin, which was really weird. Like, I went over to his house one time in L.A., and there's Cato Kamlin. Really? Pals. Yeah. Yeah, really. <laughs> and, okay. Anyway, Norm used to, you know, practice comedy downstairs in the basement and, you know, pretend the hammer was a microphone and then... And, and, to talk to a pretend audience. He was like Rupert Pupkin on The King of Comedy, if you ever saw that movie. <laughs> but it worked out for him. 
worked out pretty well. Well, I, I'd say it worked out for both of you. Colonel Sanders now, can you imagine? When my father was taking us to Cornwall, when we were little kids, we had a farm in Glengarry County, and once in a while my dad would put us in the car and he'd take us to Cornwall, and we would get a bucket of chicken from Kentucky Fried Chicken. We thought that was the all-end-all. And, you know, I told Norm recently, what would you have said if I'd appointed that fat guy with the goatee, Colonel Sanders, and said, someday you will be him? <laughs> he is actually Colonel Sanders now in their advertisements. If you can get out, <laughs> how you travel from from a small from a military base outside Quebec City to being Colonel Sanders and living in Santa Monica. I don't know, but he did it. Well, life's a I trip. I, I I tell you, you just never quite know where you're going, but uh, it. It sounds to me from a very early age, just from what you've described about your brother and even from yourself, you, you kind of knew where you were going. You know, you never know where it's going to unfold or what's going to show up, but you were well on your way to knowing where you wanted to be. So, I mean, well, I think... It took, him, it took him a while to find his way. He got up He got up on a dare, on amateur night at Yuck Yucks in, in the early 90s and uh, tried out. And, and, and he did well. And the owner, Mark Reslin had him tracked down. Somebody found my mother and said, you know, then they won't offer your son a job. So that was how he got his start. Wow. Yeah. Good for him. He takes, balls to, he takes balls to stand up on, you know, Absolutely. in front of a hostile crowd on amateur night and try to be quiet. <laughs> like, I would want to try to do it. <laughs> and the rest is history, right? I'd, I'd for... be a great success if I did, no doubt, but I wouldn't want to do it. Well, that's fantastic. And do you do you have uh, much opportunity to get together? I know you're both busy in your own ways, but do you have much time to get together? Uh, once a year or so, yeah. My mom okay. goes down and spend, my mom spends a lot of time down there with him. And, and uh, he, as I say, he, he, and whenever he comes to Canada, he, when he, whenever he was at BC, I go, I get a free ticket. You know, I, I know the band, so I get right. I get I get preferred access. So <laughs> And so what I would like to ask you too, Neil, because it's not going to be long before we have to wrap up here, but what I would like to know is what is the legacy that you choose to leave behind? You know, if you're to be remembered by anything or by any particular quality or whatever position or stance you felt that you've taken or wanted to take or felt compelled to take throughout your career uh, or just how you execute and maneuver and live your life as a human being, what is it you want to most be remembered by? I think, Cicero's brother, Marcus, said that men's accomplishments or words are swallowed up shortly after they die. Um, that wasn't the case with Cicero, but uh, it's going to be the case with me, and it's going to be the case with you, and it's going to be the case with just about everybody else. I, I, I You know, politicians think in terms of legacy. I, I, I think there's a, a slightly mega, megalomaniacal edge to that. How will I be remembered after I go? I, I don't particularly care. And I'll tell you something else. I, you know, I figure I've done a good job so far. I've got six or seven years left, I guess. And, you know, I... I I've Raise the bar on that, Neil. Raise the bar well, on that. I've kind, of, I've kind of done everything, right? So, you know, what I really want to do is I want to spend the next six years doing something interesting. That's all. Something that, that's, you know, try, maybe try to do something fresh, maybe try to do something different. But, you know... Uh, Try to do something that, that that provides a bit of intellectual stimulation, uh, not the same old, same old. And I'm probably in a position to do that. I'm lucky; I've done well. You know, I've got a, I've got a name, 
But legacy, legacy, you know, pursuit of legacy is for fools as far as I'm concerned. Uh, you know, I don't, you know, presidential libraries, I, I suppose, are necessary because of the tradition of the state. But this idea that, that I'm so bloody important that people are going to remember me, you know, 10 minutes after I'm gone is ridiculous. And besides that, I'm not going to be here anyway to find out about it. It's like, well, it's like, buy, it's like buying yourself a great big <laughs> giant gravestone, right? I mean, <laughs> I, I, that's, that's not something I intend to spend any of my hard-earned money on. Right. Um, you know, well, I, I suppose it depends on how you interpret the question. You know, when I because this this network, uh, this show, my show, it's all about personal empowerment. It's all about authenticity. It's all about people living a life of passions. And so when I use the word legacy, uh, again, that's subjective. It's open for interpretation. So you know, in terms of what other aspects of you that the real world may not necessarily know outside of your role and the different hats that you've worn. I guess I'm more so asking and referring to, you know, you as a human being, you know, if maybe there's other sides or aspects of you that's been glossed over that you would most prefer knowing that people are going to talk about you when you go, people are going to remember certain things based on their relationships with you, their interactions with you, their memories or experiences. So, you know, a lot you know, of people... Lisa, this is, this is going to sound harsh, but I don't care what people think of me. I couldn't okay. care less. I learned that oh. a long time ago. If you buy into people's praise, mm-hmm. this is, and this is part of my philosophy on, on applying for awards, if you, if you apply for an award, put your name forward for an award, and then you sit back hoping you get it, what you're really doing is you're hoping for praise. You're hoping for the plaudits or, or the approval mm-hmm. of a group of people you don't even know. Right. Right. And if you and if you and, and you know, to certain people in the workplace are like that, they, they, they hold their breath. What is the boss going to think? Is the boss going to be happy with me? If you buy into the boss's praise and some bosses aren't very bright, then you've got to buy into their criticism perforce. Right. Logically, if you buy into praise, then you've got to buy into criticism. And you can't have your life dictated by what somebody is pissed off over or what somebody likes. You know, I think that you try to, you should try to go about your job with some moral fiber and some decency and some principle, and you try to do a good job and give people their money's worth. And journalism, there's a very good reason for journalism. You know, 99% of the world, if they mm-hmm. have to choose a passport, is going to choose a passport. The country that's got a free press, so it's very important indeed. But this business of the approval of one's peers or peer review mystifies me. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I like my colleagues. I respect some of my colleagues. I really do. I couldn't care less what they think of me, and I don't suspect they care what I think of them. Mm-hmm. You know, at the end of the exercise, my 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 measure is: Am I happy with this? What I what I what I've done? I, Absolutely. Or did, or, or did I do a half-assed job? Because when you phone it in, deep down, you know when you've done a half-assed job, and you know it's kind of you feel a bit ashamed of yourself. And I don't like that. So mm-hmm. you try to give it your best shot each time. And you try to push the envelope each time, and you, maybe you try to, maybe you try to write something that people are going to read. But you do it in the knowledge that everything has been written and everything has been said. It's all derivative. You're following in footsteps and standing on soldiers' shoulders, and maybe you'll do a good job, and maybe you won't. Mm-hmm. You're, you're part of the part of the process, and you're part of the great checks and balances of a pretty good societal system. And I'm pretty happy with that. You know right. what people think of me. You know, it, it's a it, look. I, I, 
I probably should rephrase that and say, I try not to give a damn what people think of me. Everybody mm-hmm. does. But I try consciously to throw that, throw off those concerns. Because, you know, really, you ever read the, the comment section at the end of columns or stories these days? Mm-hmm. It's like an ocean of crazy. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's nuts. So why right. should anyone spend any time trying to make those people happy? All they do is point and screech and yell and, you know, mm-hmm. blare at each other. So, you know, I, I actually would be quite happy to see the comment section turned off. I, I right. really don't give a damn what most of them have to say. But, uh, well, how about, that, that's, how about that's, this? That's, that's the point I'm trying to make. I'm like, I don't mean to dismiss it. No, 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 no. No, I appreciate I I appreciate your honesty and your candor. And uh in light of all that you said and how you chose to respond to that question, to honor you um and do you proud, how about I throw tomatoes at your casket? (laughs) (laughs) Go right ahead. I don't very much difference to me. Look, you know, I, 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 I I keep trying to finesse what I'm saying, but in the atrium of the CBC, there's a great big giant portrait of Barbara Fromm. It's called the Barbara Fromm Atrium. Barbara Fromm uh-huh. was really good. She was one of the best reporters, interviewers the CBC ever had or any TV station ever had. And I, and it's great that there's a big picture of Barbara Fromm up there and people remember her. I don't care if there's ever a picture of me. If they want to put up a picture of me, that's fine. If they don't, right. don't. I don't care. I'm not going to be around, you know? Yeah, um, I, I gotcha. That would be my that would be my tremendously profound philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got about four minutes here before we have to wrap up. And, and Neil, I just want to say how much I appreciate uh, your time. I know how busy you are, and I know that you're working on some deadlines right now with articles that need to be written and submitted. So, um, so do you want to just talk very briefly about what you're working on, or can you not give anything away? No, I write a call two or three times a week, and, and you know, I, I, I guess I'm going to start doing some stuff on the American elections. I don't think that Canadians understand Americans as much as well as they think they do. I lived down there for 13 years, 12, 13 years, and I started realizing how little I understood them after I'd been there for four or five years. So, you know, I, I, and, and it, it has the potential of being a truly remarkable election. I mean, if the, if the Republicans are crazy enough to, and they are, Mm-hmm. crazy sometimes. If they're crazy enough to nominate Ted Cruz or Donald Trump, the acid, <laughs> test, the acid test that, that people like Jim DeMint have been asking for for so long, which is let's, elect, let's nominate a real conservative, and that's all we have to do. You know, mm-hmm. We have to stop nominating moderates, and we have to show that they stick by our principles. Go ahead, give it a shot. Nominate right. Donald Trump and watch what happens. I think that's right. fascinating. And uh, yeah. heaven knows, I mean, Maybe Bernie Sanders, who Saturday Night Live calls a human Birkenstock, is going to wind up. Be, so, I mean, it could, it could be. I mean, Hillary Clinton maybe yesterday's bagel. I hope not. She's a, she's a pretty smart woman, and, and there, probably, there should be a, a, a woman president of the United States. It's high time. But, you know, it, it, it's going to be a big story. Uh, Absolutely. a bigger story than the Canadian election, you know, mm-hmm. all due mm-hmm. respect. So that, and I guess, Wonderful. I've, got to get, I guess I've got to get to know the, the Canadian uh, governing class, you know, mm-hmm. I've been gone a long time, you know, <laughs> I remember when Justin Trudeau was a little boy, uh, and so I've, I've got to reacquaint myself with the people who are in charge now, because it's an entirely different group that was there when I left, mm-hmm. uh, so, you know, I got work ahead of me. So, well, there you go, and uh, yeah. and work away you will, 
So I just want to say once again, thank you very much, Neil, for having joined us here on the program. It's been lovely. I really appreciate the time that you have shared with us and your insights and your stories and your recollections. So I wish you all the best. I wish you, you know, whatever, whatever it is you choose to endeavor in your last capped seven or eight years. Good luck with that. (laughs) And, uh, and I hope that it's a great weekend of continued birthday celebrations for you, my friends. So you take care. Uh, and, uh, I just want to say thank you to my listeners for joining me once again here on my show, Carpe Diem. I go live every Friday, 11.05. 4 a.m. Eastern Standard Time with the Contact Talk Radio Network. Should you have any show topic ideas or you would wish to appear as a guest on my show, please kindly reach out to me at Lisa McDonald, M-C-D-O-N-A-L-D-13 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And in the meantime, have a wonderful weekend. Enjoy the day. Thank you again, Neil. All my best, everybody. Keep carpe with you. All right. You've been listening to Carpe Diem with your host, Lisa McDonald. For more information, please go to Lisa's website at lisamcdonaldauthor.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.